Good morning. We find ourselves at the end of John chapter 12 this morning, which is a difficult passage. It has required great study this week, and I promise to have you home by halftime. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're beginning in uh, verse 37 and reading to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though they had not had done so many signs, but though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their hearts and hardened their heart. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. John chapter 12 is long and involves many different themes, so it may be helpful to set the stage a little bit. Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem, being heralded as Messiah, But John has proceeded to paint us a picture in which the people are confused about his identity. Not everyone rightly recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, and you've also got those greeting him who we know from John's record are intending or plotting to kill Jesus, and they're also plotting to kill Lazarus, the one that Jesus has raised from the dead. In the midst of this confusion, John wants us to understand that to believe in Jesus is to live in the light. Failure to believe in Jesus is to move further into darkness, and there really is no third option. To come into uh, the presence, to encounter the revelation of God that is in Jesus Christ, has two responses, either moving into the light of Christ and His grace and mercy, or moving away from Christ into greater darkness and despair. Now that might sound relatively straightforward and a bit easy, but we need to press into the this last part of the chapter a little bit to understand better what John is, is articulating about the nature of belief. And so to do that, I want to cover these three ideas. Number one, unbelief is blindness. Number two, believing the Son is believing the Father. And number three, belief is obedience. So unbelief is blindness, believing the Son is believing the Father, and belief is obedience. First, what do I mean that unbelief is blindness? 
Our passage begins by noting in verse 37 that though Jesus has done many signs, miracles in the midst of the people, they don't believe in him. It hasn't been enough to actually push them over the line of faith. And that should raise a question for us, and it certainly did for the people on the ground in the midst of our stories. How can that be? How can people be in the presence of God in the flesh and in the presence of miracles that defy any understanding of the world around us and not then decide to follow in faith? Decide not to be a disciple of Jesus. John is writing sometime after these events actually take place, and we know from passages, a number of passages in the New Testament, this being one of them. We could also name a passage like Romans 9 through 11, that the early church, one of its hurdles is this idea is they're going out into the Mediterranean world and advocating that people should believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. All well and good. The question that's going to come up, that's coming up in the background of these passages is, okay, why should I believe in Jesus if his own people rejected him? If his own people turned him out, why why do you think I would be interested in expressing faith in that person? You can imagine how, how funny it would hit you if someone came up and said, yeah, you know, I know Saddam Hussein was thrown out by his people. That doesn't mean he wouldn't be a good president in the United States. You think, no, it kind of does mean that. This is the struggle that's going on in the early church. What to make of Jesus? What to make of the rejection of the people who don't acknowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be? To wrestle with this question, John turns to the Old Testament. There are passages that we can look at that help us to understand what's going on. And in verse 37, in fact, he's alluding to Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4, which states, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Apparently this is a long-standing problem, that Israel has experienced great signs and wonders in the midst in its midst that have been performed by God, but there has been a failure of belief. How how does this occur? Well, John moves on to the book of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 53.1 in verse 38, and in verse 40 he goes on to quote Isaiah 6.10. And he changes it a little bit. He inserts the pronoun he in the first clause, and at the end of it he inserts the pronoun I, which makes it sound kind of harsh. Read it again with me. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. How does that make you feel about God? And it makes it sound as if, oh yeah, God could go about doing something for them, or actually, they might even respond, but what He's done is intentionally harden them and blind them. So they won't respond to the, the revelation that is in Jesus, the message of truth and light and hope and salvation that's going forward. After all, lest they, they might repent and be healed. Well, that actually couldn't really be what, what John is after, particularly in this passage. It would create an immediate and significant problem. Look at verse 42. John then goes on to write, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities 
believed in him. Now, if John was saying simply that it's God's sovereign will to blind people and prevent them from repenting when they want to repent, but that some actually were able to, nevertheless, despite God's sovereign will, then we would be creating a situation in which people are overcoming God's sovereign will and trying to blind them. They're either smarter or faster or more clever and somehow aspire to figure things out. And that isn't the story that the Bible presents us with. What's going on is that the Gospel of John, like the rest of the Bible, presents to us a picture in which the world is submerged in darkness. We, we are under the water. Rebellion against God. And we see things incorrectly. We understand things incorrectly. And there is no way that we come to the light unless God draws us into the light. Unless He comes and rescues us, there is no way by which we might save ourselves. And as God's revelation, His saving message comes into the world, it must also be accompanied by God's Spirit, which awakens and makes alive and makes someone born again and enables someone to see. It's without that action of the Spirit that Israel can walk through the Red Sea and still remain unbelieving. And that we could, or that the people gathered here can see Jesus, God in the flesh, performing mighty miracles and still not believe. It is not so much that God is this person who is actively thwarting them when they want to believe, but it is God's revelation when it comes, and Jesus is the apex of that revelation, and when that comes to the fore, there are only two responses. The Spirit coming upon someone and quickening them to believe, or more hardness and more darkness, because that is the other reaction that is possible against God's mercy. As I said, there's no neutrality when one meets Jesus. But this still leaves for us a very difficult question, which has always been a difficult question. Even if God isn't the agent who is intentionally hardening those who would desire to repent, that's not what we're saying is not happening. We are saying that John is pointing up the fact that God is rescuing some, but not everyone. Why does God rescue some and not everyone? It's a terribly difficult question. It's one that I don't know how you don't struggle with. And I I don't have an easy answer for you. I think it is something that we will struggle with all of our days. And John has done such a beautiful job all the way through of, of holding intention. God's sovereignty. You, you must be called. You must be chosen. You must be born again. And man's responsibility. Come, walk in the light. If you continue in the darkness, that's on you. And it it puts us in this place of saying, how do we bring those things together that God is in control and that we are responsible and we don't know? It's something that John is comfortable to hold in tension. It's something that the Bible is comfortable to hold in tension. It's something that we must hold in tension because to go to too far to the right or the left is really to go in a very dangerous direction. But again, back to this hard question that why does God save some and not all? Why does we see... We see uh, you know, many of you are responding or have responded. Maybe some of you are considering responding to the claims of Christ. Why doesn't everyone? That is a good question, but it is not the only question. And the question that must always accompany it is, why does God save anyone? It's easy to run to the question of, oh, why? I don't like this. Why does God save some and not others? But why does God save any at all? And my favorite illustration of this, which I use every few years, 
but it's a good reminder, is this notion that if I imagine for a moment that you know, in my marriage, Jennifer was just brutally attacked and murdered. And this, you're going to like, it's a terrible illustration, but it makes the point, so bear with me. So attacked and murdered, and it's devastating, and we go through the process, and three men are, are convicted, and I follow the court case, and, and am very interested in justice coming about as a result of this. And so and they are all sentenced uh, to death for a, as a result of their crimes, and they're being taken from prison eventually, years down the road probably, to be executed. And I'm following them, and we're driving over, say, Lake Ray Hubbard. And the van that's carrying them is in some accident and veers off and plunges into the lake. And for reasons that I can't even explain to you, being a competent enough swimmer, I jump in and I save two of the three men. I, I was capable of saving three, but I didn't. The third drowned. Now the question is, what do the papers say the next day? Do they say, man who could have saved three men only saved two? Or do the papers say, man saved two men who brutally attacked and killed his wife? The latter is far more astonishing. It's far more surprising. And when we begin to wrestle with how evil we really are and selfish and that we want to be the center of our own world and as a result of that, we wreak destruction all around us and have plunged God's creation into sin and under the burden of the curse, we realize, oh, there has been great destruction and when God plunges in to save some, the paper should read, God who is perfect and holy plunges in to save some to save those who have butchered and abused His creation. That is the far more remarkable thing. And that should give us a posture of humility, a posture of incredible gratitude, never of arrogance, that God who does not have to save, does save, does engage. I'll tell you, it doesn't relieve, I won't pretend for a second, that it relieves the difficulty of the question of, why does God save some and not others? But I'll tell you what I what I do. There's a passage in the Old Testament where Moses, God says, I've had it with Israel, I'm going to destroy them. God says, Israel is done. And Moses says, God, please don't do that. Because I think your glory would be greater if you spared them. If in your mercy you acted in a way that was surprising. God declares what he's going to do. Moses prays that he does something different. And the rest plays out. I don't know what God's going to do, but I do pray that God would have mercy, and maybe we will be surprised by that mercy in the end, that it would be extended in ways that are unexpected. But this is the situation of the Spirit coming upon, of of the revelation of Jesus hardening some, that that's part of redemptive history, but we see that those who believe have received grace, unspeakable grace, to come to believe, And it is this nature of believing that is so important to John. And he goes on, really, to make an invitation for all to believe, even as he's acknowledging that not all will. And so that is our invitation, too, that all would believe. But he goes on to make clear that believing in Jesus is so important, not because Jesus is really insightful or a great speaker or prophet or teacher, 
but because Jesus is God. To believe in the Son is to believe in the Father. In verse 45, it says, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. In verse 49, the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. As the author of Hebrews puts it, He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. That's why Jesus can say in verse 44, look there, whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. What then do we learn of the Father by looking at the Son? What does the Son reveal to us about the nature and the character of the Father? What does the Son come to do? He comes not to judge. He comes to save. That the revelation of God's character, that in seeing the Son we see the Father, is not what we might expect, a God who has every right to enter into judgment but a God who makes it the priority to come and to save rather than to judge. Some of you have a, we all struggle, I think, in the West with a tendency to see God as rather judgmental. To be filled with a guilt and to constantly try to assuage our guilt and to try to atone for our own sins and our own strength. But what John is saying is, no, God, when He shows up, His priority is to save you, not to judge you. Judgment may be a result of the response, but the priority is salvation. Do you know, do you know Jesus, the God who comes to save and not to judge, knowing fully who you are and fully what you've done? Do you know that kind of mercy? In the summer of uh, 1991, David Vexy was a uh, student and in Peoria, Illinois, and he met a girl named Joelle. And they uh, met offhandedly uh, by chance a couple of times, but uh, Vexy proceeded to, to fall pretty head over heels for Joel, and they found themselves in March of 1991 spending tons of time together. Friends' obligations seemed to recede into the background as they were falling in love. But their, their time wouldn't be long, and they knew this. Vexy had planned a summer backpacking trip across Europe, and Joelle was headed, wanted to move to Chicago to pursue work. She had just graduated from school. And so they intended to write to one another. So Vexy headed to Europe and he had quite the summer. It was amazing. He, uh, he went to see, um, the Roman ruins in Trier, spent the summer solstice in Strasbourg, saw a rock concert in a soccer stadium packed with 50,000 Germanic looking bikers. In Basel, in Budapest, his ancestral home, he heard church choirs and stood before masterworks of art. So it was all unspeakably beautiful, but he said he was miserable. He was lonely. He couldn't share it with Joel. So Vexy eventually got to London where he was meeting his parents, and Joel was actually supposed to be writing to him at, to an address in Wales where they were going to hang out for a couple weeks in the middle of his summer he was with his parents. And as soon as he got to London, he decided, uh, his parents noticed that he was just, he was inconsolable by this point. Thinking only about Joelle, the summer was expiring, he was afraid that, that she might not be there when he gets back. And so his dad says, look, why don't you call her? So he called her house and realized, learned that she had already moved to Chicago. 
And then all of his letters were sitting unopened on her parents' kitchen table because she hadn't been home yet. So she hadn't heard from him. And when he arrived to Wales, he re- there was no letter waiting for him. And so now he was desperate. And his parents, recognizing that he would not be consoled, said, listen, uh, head back. And so they put him on a train to London where he was going to try to return. But in London, they said, you can't use your round-trip ticket from here. You would The only place you could get out is from Paris. And so he ran to Dover and took the, the boat across the channel and took the night train to Paris. And there he found himself with a group of students who were also backpacking through Europe over the summer, and they started to uh, to mock him. You're crazy. You're giving up a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. One of the young men there said, I'm going to meet my friends in Pamplona. Run with the bulls. Come with me. Another young lady said, I'm going to wait tables in France and lie on the beach. Come with me. But he wouldn't be deterred. And so he goes to Paris and to the airport, and they said, yes, you can use that ticket, but it'll be three weeks before you get on a flight. And so he's despairing now. And so somehow he found his way at at the the, uh, counter. He was flying United. He found himself at the counter of British Airways. He said, do you have any room on a flight? And I said, well, you would do, but it's leaving in 20 minutes. Are you ready to go? And he said, yes, but he had to decide he had a credit card from his parents that was for emergency purposes only as a, as a college student. And he elected to decide that was an emergency purpose and used it to buy a ticket home that cost more than the round-trip ticket his parents had bought uh, earlier in the year. And Vexy would not relay that story to his parents. He wouldn't tell them what they did with the credit card. Uh, until four years later, which was the night before he and Joel got married. Now, how do you think Joel felt when Vexy showed up? And given up his plans, given up his summer in Europe, doing everything he could to pursue her and to find her and uh, to seek her out. Pretty special, I would think. God calls the church His bride, and He has chased you over space and time. He's pursued you through the centuries that you might be one and that you might be saved. If that doesn't make you feel special, then you're either dead or you're very blind. I don't mean to to liken God's relationship, reduce it, but the Bible uses this kind of language for us to understand God's love for us, His people. And can you imagine, just for fun, for a moment, that scene on the train where it wasn't Vexy, but imagine that there are other lesser gods and God's sitting there and the gods are saying, I'm going to go throw thunder around. I'm going to go make a volcano erupt. I'm going to create a cosmos. And God says, yeah, I'm going to go die for my people. And I say, what? Are you crazy? That's a That's a foolish idea. You know they won't respond. They won't get it. It'll be wasted. Right? Utterly fictitious. But I want you to be surprised and wooed by the God who, who shows up in the flesh and has every right to be someone very different, has some, has the right to be someone who comes in judgment and he comes not in judgment, but to save, to make you his bride. Why not surrender to that kind of love? Why not believe in Jesus in a way that longs for the glory of God rather than the glory of man? 
John's not quite done. John wants to make sure that we understand, as he records Jesus' teaching, that that belief takes a certain shape. You can hear his frustration with the, the rulers. He's delighted that they come to believe, but they pursued the glory of man, not of God, because they haven't really been bold about their confession. They're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, so for the consequences they might suffer, they're not really going to obey. They're not really going to be someone who actually demonstrates their faith in Christ. And so this last point is that belief is obedience. We have to realize that belief must take certain action, and it is actually our actions and not simply our confessions that reveal to us what we truly believe. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry this week when I I read a short story. There was a problem in a South Texas high school. It wouldn't disclose the high school. I don't know if it was public or private, but they had planned this big trip to Europe. And 40 or 50 students had signed up to take this trip to go visit Europe. But as the trip was planned and was was about to be executed or getting close to that time, a bunch of the parents started dropping out and pulling their kids out. Well, the teacher started to say, what is going on? And came to realize that what was going on was that a bunch of parents had seen the movie Taken. Have you heard of Taken? I, it's not a movie worth seeing, uh, but it's making a lot of money, as funny as that happens. Taken is now a franchise. It's on its third edition. And Liam Neeson is an ex-CIA agent who has a daughter who actually has a gift for getting kidnapped. Uh, apparently three times, if she's the one who's kidnapped in the third movie, I don't know. But So this is what happens in the first movie. She goes to Europe, fun and games, and gets abducted. Well, thank goodness her father is an ex-CIA agent who single-handedly wages war against French mafia and Eastern European gangs, and there's a massive slaughter and, of course, rescues his daughter in the end. And somehow it resonates with us as a culture. I don't know if it's that we just like to be afraid of the worst thing that could possibly happen, or if we want to believe that there's someone who's equipped culturally that could rescue our child if that did happen. But their chances of being abducted in Europe are roughly 1 in 20 million. And so having watched this movie, the parents pulled their kids out of the trip said, uh, we've seen Taken. We know what happens over there. And so their their action wasn't based on reason, wasn't rational, it wasn't even based on a real story or a personal experience. Or, well, I know this person. It was based on a fictional movie. So the teacher contacted Liam Neeson and said, please, would you write a letter? And the letter to the parents of the school effectively says, hey, guess what? Taken is not a documentary. It's really okay. You You can send your kids. So... Now, but that reveals it, we're not the most rational people. Our hearts are, are, are fickle and they can be prone to be adjusted by different things. And, but what really reveals what we believe is what happens. Right? What did those parents believe? They believed that kids are getting abducted all over the place and that was what was going to happen to their child if they sent them to Europe. That was their, they might not have said that out loud. They might not have even confessed that. But their actions betray their belief. So it is with us. Jesus says that His Word is the Word of God, and there are only two relationships to that Word, obedience and disobedience. That's why the very Word is the, 
is a word of judgment because we will be held accountable for that which we do with that word. And when we speak of obedience and disobedience, people can feel threatened. Threatened that you will never be obedient enough to earn your salvation. Uh, sorry. You feel threatened. Because then you start to think, oh, well, if obedience is really necessary, if that's required, I have to be, I'm always monitoring my obedience. Because if I'm not obedient, then I'm not going to be saved. And that's, Jesus comes to enable your obedience. Obedience isn't a prerequisite for your salvation. And some of you feel like you lose your freedom, or you lose fun, or you lose your uniqueness. If everyone's obedient, that's very boring, and everyone will be the same. And of course, this isn't true at all, because Jesus redefines joy and pleasure in ways that you can't possibly imagine. And He doesn't come to squash gifts and talents, but to enable them and flourish and to give new and additional gifts and talents. Imagine imagine that you are a pilot. Your daughter comes to you and says, Mom, I know that you've always promised me that you would teach me to fly on my 18th birthday. I'm grateful for that, but over the years, I know my 18th birthday is next week, but over the years I've become so good at making and flying paper airplanes. I don't want to give that up. I don't want it to be compromised. So I don't want to learn to fly. You would say, oh, you're missing. It doesn't understand. It's content with something so small and simple rather than embracing that which is great and significant. And that is the same where we might be reluctant to think deeply about what obedience looks like and what it means. You say, no, I'm content with this little piece of obedience. And I think that's good. I'm saved. I'm rescued. Things are in good order. I'm going to leave it at that. Rather than believing that more obedience would actually result in greater joy and greater pleasure and greater fulfillment. Zach and I were talking earlier, and he made the good point that when you think about belief and its relationship to action, and that we can't simply say that belief is a confession. We say, I believe this, and we leave it at that, but the actions don't go along with that confession and therefore don't reaffirm it. That's not really real. That's not real belief. And he made the point that marriage is always a good example of such. Would you, would you rather be married to a spouse who says all the time, I love you. Let me confess my love to you. But who never actually acts on it. Or a spouse who demonstrates his or her love all the time, but may fail to say it. You realize that what really is at the core of relationship is not simply confession, but committed belief. And this is the committed relationship that Jesus calls us into. He comes to save, and He comes to be the Word in the flesh and grants us His Word that we might be in fellowship with Him. What does it mean for you to really believe? What does it mean for your belief to take action? Or, put another way, where is your action clearly communicating to yourself and to everyone that you don't really believe. If you believe, one application is certainly that you will pray. If you believe, there is nothing greater than you could do that you could do, then pray. Tonight we gather for a night of prayer. 
bring our voices together because in that very act, simply by doing it, we are confessing that we believe that God is good and just and loving and hears us, and we act on that belief. That could be one way to actually communicate to your own heart and communicate to the world that you believe. Pray with us tonight and pray with me as I close now. Gracious God, we thank You for Your love and Your mercy. We do not pretend to understand all of Your workings in this world, and so we humble ourselves before You and thank You for our salvation and pray for the salvation of the world. We pray, Father, that You would help us to believe deeply, that our hearts would be affected by the love that You have stirred within us for Jesus Christ our Lord, and in that You would continue to shape us and to make us Your own. Let us throw off those aspects of our life that communicate that we do not believe and help us to believe. We ask for Your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.